Hey, good morning, everybody. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Well, the the views and uh, opinions expressed on this program, as usual, are not those necessarily of KUCI, its management, or the California Board of Regents. This is Claudia Shambaugh, your host for my March 12, 2013 edition of Ask a Leader with another full plate. Uh, It's a bit changed from what I had projected uh, last week. Uh, It's going to be a month. We'll hear from Natalie Burgess along with uh, other adult cancer survivors who will update us on their situations. But today, my first guest is Carla Jacobs, who returns to Ask a Leader amidst some action on the mental health front in California. Some of it is good and some of it is not. In the second half, anthropology professor Harriet Finney will talk about her research in northern Vietnam about some women who took up reproduction on their own terms. I hope you'll stay with us for both of these women's compelling work. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this interlude. everybody. Thank you for joining us. My first guest is Carla Jacobs. Ms. Jacobs has actively sought to revise and incorporate current scientific knowledge pertaining to the nature and treatment of mental illness in the community and to streamline its efficiency in today's managed care environment. And there is a good deal of movement in what managed care is going of recent. She was co-chair of the Reform Lanterman Petrus Act Task Force. She was also editor of the New Vision for Mental Health Treatment Laws. She is a board member of, and continues to be for some years, of the National Treatment Advocacy Center, a legal advocacy uh, bringing laws up to what we know about neurological disorders. Executive Director of Plan for California, a former National Alliance on Mental Illness, a board member of Family Support and Education, and lives in Tustin, where she uh, calls in this interview today. Uh, here, uh, Laura's law was signed into California, California state law in 2002, and that's critical. We're going to bring that up in Proposition 63 uh, as they're all playing out at this point. Um, she returns to ask a leader to post us on the latest developments, both administrative and legislative uh, in arenas, and she'll tell us about our role. That is what we've got to keep with us. So welcome back to the show, Carla Jacobs. Good morning, Claudia. I First of all, I just want to uh, just take stock and, and honor your tireless work in bringing um, literacy into the mental health, I'm not going to call it mental illness, it's the mental health uh, whole discussion, and uh, there, there is no one like you, and it's really, a, it's an honor, Carla Jacobs, to have you back on the show. Well, to summarize for the listeners who join us today, the Landerman Petrus Short Act was intended to protect individuals with serious mental illness from inappropriate and indefinite institutionalization, but it has had many unintended consequences, including uh, creating a barrier to treatment, allowing, as your task force has said, Californians with mental illness to achieve self-determined recovery in the community, resulting in those individuals being hazards to themselves, to their loved ones, and the community at large. Or in short, as you say, 
California still uses a treatment standard based primarily on a person's likelihood being dangerous instead of using a more progressive term uh, definition of the need for treatment standard, as uh, many other states have. So um, let's fill in the the public on sort of the, uh, add to that background, Carla Jacobs, if you'd would. The uh, Lantham and Petra Short Act was passed in the late 1960s when we did not know or we had really forgotten that severe mental illness such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder are neurobiological brain-based diseases. Um, I remember those days well. Uh, We uh, were honoring marching to a different drummer, uh, civil rights, of course, and should always be of utmost importance. But this idea that uh, people with mental illness um, were social dissidents, um, uh, a label that society put on uh, people that were different, um, had permeated a lot of our ideology rather than our scientific um, experience with mental illness. It was a time of change. The federal government had just passed the Great Society, which included um, Social Security supplemental income and uh, Medicaid. And um, the states were looking for a way to reduce the burden of the cost of institutionalization on their state budgets. And so they took the fact that all of a sudden the federal government was going to provide them leverage if treatment was done in the community um, to the point where they removed from mental health treatment laws the idea of need for treatment and replaced it with very narrow criteria of danger to self, danger to others, under the assumption that uh, people, all people with mental illness, would be able to line up and accept community treatment in what was pretty much a strictly voluntary environment. So the the sort of fiscal tightening was a real horrible sort of trend for the actual care and well-being of well, it the... Really, it really wasn't fiscal tightening. It was the introduction of a new source of money. But that new source of money came to the states with caveats. Yes. It had been the historical responsibility of the state to, perter- to provide long-term care Uh, The federal government did not want to assume that fiscal responsibility. So through Medicaid, they basically said that um, they would provide this huge leverage to the treatment um, community. However, the treatment had to be done in um, the community and um, maybe short-term hospitalizations. Uh, So we at the time had about 40,000 people in our state hospitals. Um, The majority of them were old folks with no place to go, uh, children with behavioral problems, 
About 30% of the population was labeled psychotic, what we would now think of as severe mental illness. And the reality is the majority of them could survive in a community treatment um, system, but there was a percentage that needed more. And so as a result, within uh, five years of the passage of the LPS, we were finding very, very ill people who were not dangerous to self, dangerous to others, but being driven by the symptoms of their illness, filling up our jails and our prisons instead of um, being able to uh, accept the community treatment that was provided to them. As many of your task force um, uh, recommendation um, task force uh, issue papers talk about, there are more that are institutionalized in correctional settings versus in mental health treatment settings, and that's, that's doing them a huge disservice. Well, and that particular population, we never deinstitutionalized. We basically took them off out of the hospital, put them on the streets, and trans-institutionalized them to the only um, institution that was left. The penal. And that was the penal system. So you talk about the this, this the gravely disabled standard, talking about that it should be modified to consider whether an individual is capable of satisfying his, satisfying his or her need for either, um, you know, just generally, as you Absolutely. say. Absolutely. Nourishment, um, personal, yes. medical care. Yeah, mental illness is, a, as I said, a neurobiological-based illness. It as, is as medical in nature as diabetes, Alzheimer's. We do have a very narrowly defined uh, grave disability statute criteria in California. Yes. But that is basically the inability to accept or utilize food, shelter, clothing if provided to them. Now, most people are going to eat um, if somebody gives them a sandwich. So any other medical disorder, what we look at is does the person have the stable medical capacity to recognize they have an illness, weigh the benefits and detriments of treatment as well as the consequences. If a person has that medical capacity to understand they have an illness, weigh the benefits and detriments, then as a society, I believe, we have no right to intervene in their behalf. But in the they case... Have the right to um, their decision and the consequences. But if the person doesn't have that medical capacity, the reason we live in society is help and protect each other. And with this very, very severely ill population, we are not doing that. And then also critical in, in this is the intervention definition of the uh, conservatorship, and your task force recommends, and I'm going to quote because it's, it's put so well, a simpler, more rational response would be to provide the Lanterman Petrus Short uh, conservatorship option to any person with a mental illness who lacks the capacity to provide informed medical decisions regarding their treatments. Mm-hmm. That's, um, it's only fair. It's only equitable. That's what, as I said, we do um, for any other person who is suffering an illness that impairs their ability uh, to make cognitive decisions. And in California, it's one of the remaining states that's still constrained by the the definition that requires the conservatorship can only be granted if determined under 
uh, and I quote, beyond a reasonable doubt standard, the standard that's normally it's restricted to criminal cases. Yeah, um, the uh, California, exactly, um, in order to obtain a conservatorship, uh, it has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. That is basically the same standard that we would try to find somebody guilty of murder on. Um, it's a very <sighs> high standard. And it is not used in uh, medical treatment or civil treatment. But um, Montana, I think, also still has that standard. It is a very high hurdle to um, prove the current criteria. As we say, these barriers here to getting the proper treatment. Well, for those of you uh, who've just joined us today on Ask a Leader at KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, my guest is Carla Jacobs the tireless advocate for mental health care delivery in Orange County and in the state of California, currently a board member of the National Treatment Advocacy Center. We're talking about uh, now we're going to pivot into the not so much the background, but the current debate, the current legislative activity of reforming the mental health laws around the state of California. We had adopted uh, Proposition 63, uh, that was going to provide for funds for mental health care in ver- a variety of ways, but it's been reappropriated to totally unrelated uses. Carla, please post us on what is that debacle all about? Well, Prop- Proposition 63 was a ballot initiative that passed in 2004. It's known as the Mental Health Service Act. The intent of Proposition 63 was to bring into the system a very, very needed funding stream by levying on people who earned over a million dollars a year. I don't think, Claudia, that's you and me. Um, A 1% surcharge that would go directly to mental health um, services. The proposition was divided into various pots of money. Uh, There was a pot of money that was going to go, the biggest pot, to community treatment services, um, a pot that was going to go to early intervention and prevention, and then um, some other fundings for capital development, uh, anti-stigma campaigns, etc. Um, the community service money is uh, most is the money that we're really talking about, and a lot of that money, I would say most of that money, is being used well. It's going for full-service partnerships, which mean that multidisciplinary teams will work with the individual in the community to help them get treatment, to help them get housing, to basically help them get well and stay well. There has been controversy on the use of um, especially the PEI, the Prevention and Early Intervention money, that um, some of that money is not going for mental illness, as the proposition intended, but, um, you know, feel-good projects. Uh, There have been reports that it's gone for yoga classes for mental health staffers, um, um, community gardens, uh, things that were not the intent of the voters. 
the bigger problem with Proposition 63 is it got after the voters passed it, tied up in ideological questions. Okay. And that was whether it could be used for voluntary services only or whether it could also be used for people who required involuntary services, i.e., conservatorships, assisted outpatient treatment. And so um, that ideological debate has really muddied the works on the county levels as to what can they use that money for. Can they use it for, for example, people who are receiving uh, Laura's Law assisted outpatient treatment where an individual who is revolved through hospital or jail is court-ordered to participate in intensive services in the community. I know yes. that it can. And the reason I know that it can mm. is that I was involved with the um, debate over the regulations. Nevada County, uh, which is providing assisted fully implemented AIT, right. Laura's Law, mm-hmm. has state approval to use MHSA. But when something trickles down from the state and then gets debated again on local levels, it does um, cause red herrings and confusion. And um, I would say the vast majority of MHSA funds, Prop 63, are going for partially what is intended. Um, There have been allegations by people that um, the money is going for the less ill rather than the most ill, and there's validity in those allegations also. Well, we have a means, folks, for um, reaching out uh, to the state-level legislative arena on the... um, concerning the MHSA, and that would be uh, reaching, as you, uh, I think you recommended it, among others, California State Auditor's Office, that's Dana Brawley, at um, 555 Capitol Mall, Suite 330 in Sacramento, uh, or there's the MHS tip line that can be called. Uh, is that a useful line? Is that a good resource, uh, you Carla? Know, I've not called it myself. Uh, the state auditor is doing an audit as to aspects of Prop 63 to see if it has been diverted to uses that was not intended to. And um, I believe that that tip line, if somebody knows about um, where MHSA funds are going to services that do not benefit people with severe mental illness, they should call that line. It's a number I can give. Carter, it's a number I can give on uh, the air. It's 916-445-0255, and there's an extension 446. That's the executive office there, the state uh, California auditor's office. Um, so it's, but 
perhaps there is a, a level of sophistication to address this with. Is it's a as you said, it's a matter of ideology whether it's sort of the lesser needy versus the more extremely impaired that are uh, beneficiaries of that of the Prop 63 funds. So, um, and uh, those of you that have just joined us, uh, we're, oh, we're almost closing heavens. Uh, we uh, want to post you uh, with Carla Jacobs um, today uh, on Ask a Leader about some of the pending legislation. I want to first quickly talk about there are several, there's a couple of Senate bills, a couple of Assembly bills. Uh, if you want to maybe go to uh, the if you want to specifically mention them, Senator Leland has a, a Senate Bill 664, removing the requirement that each county board of supervisors pass a resolution prior to implementing the assistant outpatient treatment. Do you, do you like the looks of that one, Carla? I think that is the absolute best bill. Again, we're talking about um, Laura's Law Assisted Outpatient Treatment, where people who revolve through hospitals and jails can receive intensive supervised treatment in the community to prevent them from de- um, compensating to the level of um, danger again. And Senator Leland Yee's bill removes one of the most um, uh, difficult hurdles that we've had on a county level to uh, implement AOT in that uh, it had passed with the original bill, had passed with each county board of supervisors having to pass a specific finding that no voluntary program would be reduced in order to implement uh, uh, Laura's law. And so Senator Leland Yees also clarifies that MHSA funding can be used for the services within Laura's law, but also requires this additional political hurdle that has to be passed. It becomes a tool that a county can use um, when it's necessary, uh, but doesn't require this complex resolution that no, this service won't be closed, that service won't be closed in order to start this service. There are several other bills that are addressing the same issue. Yes. Um, Senator Daryl Steinberg right. also has a bill, SB 585. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, Senator... Um, um, excuse me, Assemblyman Monster from from uh, here, from here, our from where we sit. County, from, uh, yes, um, has a bill that clarifies MHSA funds can be used for Laura's Law, and also provides that um, MHSA funds can be used to provide outreach and evaluation for school age uh, individuals who may be a threat to themselves or others. Uh, all of these. Bills are new legislation. Amen. They're going to be flushed out over committee hearings in the next um, spring, in this spring. And um, I'm expecting one, two, or more will pass. Okay. But we have to give the legislators the political will to do so, which means that I would hope your listeners would write to Senator Lee, write to Senator Steinberg, write to Assemblyman Monser, and tell them um, we need to make sure that assisted outpatient treatment is implemented uh, in order to help our communities. 
And I just want to remind people that the Mental Health Services Act, MHSA, that is Proposition 63. So uh, so keep all those labels straight. And uh, and this is a golden opportunity for those who all of us feel a bit helpless to deal with this unwieldy mental health uh, conundrum here that um, to support the the senators and our, our local representatives in in showing the leadership here to take this opportunity to make some an amazing progress, make in, amazing inroads into uh, securing uh, those that have been falling, not through the cracks, they've been abysses. It is a definite opportunity. What we have represented this year on the um, legislative uh, level is that it's bipartisan support. Amen. This is not a case of one uh, group fighting against another group. This is a group of very, very important, thoughtful legislators all coming together and saying, this has got to be a priority if we are going to make a difference with the impact mental illness has on our communities. And I want to also mention, um, perhaps on the advocacy level and the general uh, educational level, is the, uh, I'm going to give everybody an email address to uh, pursue this progress being made and and to uh, ask questions. It's called Save Lives at treatmentadvocacycenter.org. So that that's a way people to check in, find out what's um, what they want to know in a specific case level or um, in the in the legislative arena, what's going on, and is there any other website resource before yes, we close? Um, that's an email where they can sign up for alerts regarding these legislations. But if they would like to go to www.treatmentadvocacycenter.org, that will give them an awful lot of resources about a severe mental illness. And click on California, and that will take them to a web page that tells them what is happening in California, what is happening in the counties, and uh, provide them more information. And for those of you who just didn't have your clipboard and pen and pencil or tablet handy, I'll be sure to include all of this uh, in contact information in the podcast summary so that everyone has a means for following up the the wonderful work you you heard how just just positively distinguished and thorough uh, uh, that Carla Jacobs is and I thank you Carla for returning today on Ask a Leader to post us on these developments and I I think we can close we I mean the some of the biz the good the news hasn't been good in terms of how monies have been used but I think we can close on a reasonably more positive note than uh, the year and a half ago when we last talked uh, that things there's movement now there's some promise in the wings in this legislative session in California. Definite recognition. And Claudia, I thank you and um, your listeners for paying attention. This is just one of those quiet and sometimes noisy tragedies that needs to stop. It, It can, we can help people get well, and we can keep them well, and we can keep them safe. Carla Jacobs, thank you for all of your time and efforts and the time you've appropriated to our show today. Thank you so very much. Goodbye. All the best. Thank you. We are going to head into uh, the next part of the show. It's going to be with Harriet Finney, who is 
a professor of anthropology at Seattle University. She'll talk about what some women in a small northern Vietnamese village who in the face of challenging demographic situations eventually broke down some social barriers. Way down deep in your deep, deep heart is a fire. Way down deep in your deep, deep heart is a fire. Way down deep in your deep, deep heart, fire is a blaze and love is a spark. Way down deep in your deep, deep heart is a fire. Love, love, love. How honey, sweet honey in the rock, just do it. Well, welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is Harriet Finney, professor of anthropology at Seattle University, where she's been on the faculty since 2005. She received her BA in anthropology at Grinnell College, her master's in public health and international health at the University of Michigan, and her PhD in anthropology at the University of Washington. Here's some of the wonderful titles that are a part of her research to catch your interest, folks. Obstacles to the Cleanliness of Our Race, uh, HIV Stigma, Stratified Reproduction and Population Quality in Hanoi, Vietnam. And uh, other titles include Rice is Essential but Tiresome, You Should Get Some Noodles, where she explores the political economy of marital HIV risk in Hanoi and uh, objects of affection. Vietnamese Discourses on Love and Emancipation. Now there's Reconfiguring Reproductive Space, Asking for a Child, or Reconfiguring Notions of Love, Marriage and Motherhood, Unmarried Women's Reproductive Desire in North Vietnam, which we're going to talk about today. She comes to us today from Seattle, Washington. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Professor Harriet Finney. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. Well, let's talk first about the path, I think this distinguishes you amongst academics, the path that you took uh, with your background in international public and reproductive health, how in 1993, you let the region in North Vietnam, particularly the village of, is it pronounced Loai? Um, I went to, that's where um, the uh, New York Times journalist did her research. I did my research in Sok Sun. Okay, Saksan is where you were conducting your field research, how it led you to what you actually study. Tell us about that. Well, initially I went to uh, northern Vietnam to focus on issues related to women's reproductive health. I was interested in the fact that uh, Vietnam was opening up to Western scholars, and I knew that there would be a lot of Western NGOs and family planning organizations wanting to come into Vietnam because I had been one of them. And so when I went to Vietnam in 1993 to study Vietnamese and do pre-dissertation research, um, I started talking to people and asking them about uh, my research interests. And every time I asked them, they would say, well, yes, that's interesting, but have you heard about these women who had asked for a child, as they referred to it as Sincon? And uh, I said, no, I hadn't, and that's very interesting. And I kept on um, meeting different people. It didn't matter whether it was someone selling pho or someone pumping up bicycle tires. But they kept saying, but have you heard about these women who'd asked for a child? And so I came to realize uh, that... Uh, these women were what uh, Vietnamese were interested in. And so from an anthropological perspective, we may have 
a research question that we're interested in, but once we start asking and hanging out with people, we um, begin to learn what people themselves are really interested in. And so that led me to shift my research focus. That, it's entirely wonderful. I, w- I once interviewed an academic at UCI who talked about uh, helicopter academia and where they sort of land uh, without language experience, without that kind of, uh, without more context, to, uh, bring their special research interest to a place where, in fact, as you, excuse me, you have found that the that the context is provided to you with uh, those in whose midst you are, and that's where we take you then to where there was, in the setting, there was uh, a serious imbalance in the sex ratio as a result of the protracted conflict in the Indochina War, and all the way into 1990 resulted in three, excuse me, in the three common experiences where there were few, if any, men, women did not consider themselves to be marriageable, and the women were lonely. Conditions Mm -hmm. unimaginable to us right here where we are, but they were pervasive in that society. Talk about those, the three delays. Oh, the three delays. Um, Yes, well, during uh, the socialist era when um, they were trying to rebuild the nation after the Indochina Wars, or actually during the war and then after, particularly during the war, um, women and men were asked to uh, delay love if they did not yet love, delay marriage if they weren't married, and delay childbearing if they did not yet have children. And the goal was to get people to focus their uh, emotional uh, attention and all of their energy on fighting for the nation to oust the Americans and then afterwards to build the nation, this new socialist um a nation-state. And so many people did. Uh, the people that I talked to in the North uh, did delay. So the women that I had interviewed, who had, had eventually asked for a child, had delayed uh, getting married. And so after the war, they found themselves too old uh, to get married. So that's, that is the context. And so uh, loneliness, uh, as you uh, research, investigate, it's not so much uh, from the lack of a partner, but the lack of childbearing experience. Talk yes. to us about that. Uh-huh. Well, that that's what I found so uh, fascinating is so uh, many of the women that I had talked to, maybe they had loved someone in the past uh, or their love had been thwarted or they never had love. But once they realized it was too old, to, they were too old to be married, um, what I found really was that the real love that they wanted was the love of a child. And in fact, many married women I talked to said, well, you know, one of the reasons why we get married um, is so that we can have a child who will love us. And so bearing a child um, brings a love that is considered to be uh, more enduring than any other love. And so what, another interesting component of this is the importance of having a biological child. So uh, single women in the past, and I think maybe women today, may have been given a relative, a niece or a nephew to take care of, so they would have someone to love. Um, But after the war, they considered this to be insufficient, and uh, they felt that having a biological child would ensure that their child would stick around because of the blood tie. And so one of the things that a child, a biological child will do, uh, will stick around, take care of you in your old age. But also there's this whole other component of 
that women talk about about the importance of bearing your own child, of actually getting pregnant, um, experiencing the fetus, all of the physical changes that happens to a woman as she's pregnant, and then the experience of giving at birth. And so the, uh, they talked about this in terms of this um, creates... Uh, helps you become a real woman. So a real woman is someone who has um, given birth to a child and has gone through these physical experiences. And it, through these physical experiences, you create a love with your child that you would not be able to otherwise. Yes. And also the love of a man, you know, you never, you know, you never know. You never, <laughs> right? You just never know. Well, I want to make sure everybody's on board. My guest in this part of Ask a Leader is Professor Harriet Finney, anthropologist who study a phenomenon of women in northern Vietnam uh, who have, quote, asked, a ch- has asked to have a child under these uh, particular and pragmatic circumstances here on Ask a Leader, KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming to everybody live, including King County, Washington, on the web w- at KUCI.org. Well, um, what was interesting among all of these developments, now we're going, to, we're going to fast forward to 1986, when it was legislated throughout Vietnam, the law on the family and marriage granting women the right to ask for a child. And there were, there were some cultural and some political and uh, some economic prerogatives involved. Can you talk to those, Harriet? Uh, sure. So um, a number of women actually had asked for a child prior to uh, 1986. 1986 is sort of is the year when the Vietnamese government shifted to a market economy with a socialist direction, and uh, one component of that was the promulgation of a new law on marriage and the family. And this law uh, provided all women; it, it recognized that all women have the right to reproduce or have a child, and so by granting all women the right to have a biological child, it was widely interpreted as recognizing the rights of women, of these single women who were too old to get married to have a child. And so this was a very significant move in a patrilineal society where women generally get married um, to have a child of their own, but also to carry on their patriline. So um, that there were actually two components yes. to that law. One was um, recognizing the right to have a child, but there was another component to the law that uh, provided uh, and spoke to the rights of children who are born out of wedlock. So children who had been born out of wedlock uh, often or sometimes were discriminated against because they didn't have a father around. And so the women's union um, were trying to advocate for the rights of these children who didn't have fathers. And so in turn, single women ended up deriving their reproductive rights from their child, not from a husband. And so a number of women who, uh, recognizing this after the law, recognized that it was now socially and um, legally acceptable for them to have a child out of wedlock. But as a... Yes. So yeah, is that clear? <laughs> yes, and, and it. But I thought it was interesting, though, in the pragmatic sense that it not, the law didn't just uh, address the um, the demolished male population, but it was a, a reproductive strategy that could allow the state to withdraw its welfare responsibilities. Oh yes, um, yes, that was um, very significant because before um, 1986, with the shift in the government policy. 
the state and the communes were responsible for everyone's welfare. But as we, they switched to a new type of market economy, the Vietnamese government then set up the family or the individual as being primarily responsible for their own welfare. So then what do they do with all these older women uh, who... Uh, you know, who's going to take care of them in their old age? So, as you say, it's an incredibly pragmatic response for the Vietnamese state to say, yeah, it's okay for these women to have a child on their own because these children will take care of them on their own in this new uh, new economy. So then uh, I think everybody's wanting to know, okay, so asking for a <laughs> child, how did this work? I don't know if you want to talk in a general principle and then we talk case study. Um, it's, uh, I think it's, it's lovely how uh, the women navigated the relationship upon which they could conceive the child and offer the kind of reassurance that it was it was for procreation. It was not for a, a an in, enduring love relationship that they were wanting this um, for this to happen. At that, so that it would provide assurances to the prospective um, male contributor and to that man's wife, who um, was typically in the picture. I mean, all all the men must have had wives because there there weren't that many men anyway. Yeah. So uh-huh. so this was a very complicated sort of arrangement, but it came out very, very clean and, uh, and, you know, workable. So can you tell us about how that was navigated in this local cultural societal norm? Um, okay, yeah. So there are a couple different scenarios um, that I could talk about. One Please. is, during the war, a number of women went up to work in state forestry farms working on projects that were to benefit the, uh, the war effort. And so you had high concentrations of women living in remote areas where there were no men around. And so some of these women would ask, for instance, one woman uh, that I know of asked a man who was a superior, uh, you know, at the farms, a boss, if he would get her pregnant. And so the arrangement that women, and so that's one scenario. And a second scenario are women who were living back at home, who hadn't gone anywhere, but there were no men around, who also wanted to ask men to get married. In all of these cases of the women that I interviewed, the uh, arrangement that they worked out with the men was that the man would just get them pregnant, and he would have no responsibility to the child whatsoever afterwards. Some men might have said, well, I know you're very poor. I'll give you a little bit of money so you can have some food or some clothing for the child, but that's it. Uh, There was one case in Hanoi, a woman who was uh, a bit more highly educated, who had ended up getting uh, asking her old boyfriend, her boyfriend, to get her pregnant. But because he was younger, she didn't want to marry him because that was too risky. But she did, she wrote out a, a contract wow. that stipulated that he had no rights over the child because she was worried that if his parents found out about the child, that they would take the child from her. So one of the reasons why it was socially acceptable is because. The women specifically were not interested in disrupting a mar- the marriage between a man and his wife. Now, an interesting, you know, we might ask, well, how could that be? They're having sex with these men. How could, uh, why wouldn't that disrupt their marriage? Well, one of the uh, interesting aspects of that is the way they talk about sexuality. So, uh, 
there are different gendered notions of sexuality. So yes. women talked, and then men also talked, because I interviewed men also. They said men can have sex without emotion, and they talk about this phrase uh, that they use in Vietnam. Men are like sticks in the sand. They go yeah. poking holes, and then they can't remember mm. where they have been. Right. And so that's sort of to you know indicate, yes, I can get a woman pregnant and not ha- be emotionally attached to her. And then the other... Uh, component uh, is that women have sex primarily to reproduce and so they took the so we might ask where is this uh, where is the discussion of love well they uh, women had said well because i have already loved or i haven't right. loved they've abandoned i'm not going to love this man yes. and so it's going to be okay i'm not going to cha- ruin his uh, his marriage because so of, it was socially acceptable and I was going to say it, it was in those incredible circumstances in that protracted Indo-Chinese war that there were men in their previous lives in the women's previous lives that that no longer existed and so they the women held a, a, a sort of a bond and a, a love tie with that person they they were more bonded to that than they were of the contemporary male opportunities around them so that was a really uncanny kind of a, a fit for this yes, asking yes. for a child yes. to occur. Definitely. And, and so um, I wanted to, uh, to actually we could bring up then uh, certain cases of, uh, well, how this was navigated. No, and, and, the, and, so, and the wives, I'm, let me go back to the, 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 where the, the wife of the man who was asked for a child, the, the women, the wives understood this compartmentalization and they, they were actually eventually... Uh, offering permission for this kind of a situation to take place? Um, yeah, the, the uh, situation with women um, is interesting also. And I, during the war, it's interesting, you have to almost go back to the war era time to understand this community of sentiment that uh, they tried to create. And uh, other uh, Vietnamese scholars have talked about the way in which uh, women, Vietnamese women, would take care of other women's soldiers' sons. And so they had created, you know, hoping that if my son is off somewhere, some other woman would take care of them. Mm. So there was, Vietnamese women shared a common sense of community with other women around the importance of having children and taking care of a, a children, of children. And Vietnamese women also understand what it's what it is to sacrifice for others, that, uh, you know, sort of this trope that Vietnamese women sacrifice their own devi- desires for others, so their own desires for a husband, a husband's family, and now we see the argument shifted to other women. So, uh, so women would, the idea was that women shouldn't, a married woman should not be jealous if her husband gets someone else pregnant. Whether in fact women were, these wives were jealous or not, uh, you know, <laughs> never knew. I think probably some were. Right. Uh, okay. I think it definitely depends on the situation. And so, uh, let's, if we can, in the time remaining, we can briefly touch on how is it Chin Tan Tam, uh, the social significance of her situation. Where, uh, well, we talked about there was a beginning, a middle, and end. The scenario that uh, she overcame what could have been a messy circumstance, but she she managed. Um. Uh, Chi, yeah, can you speak uh, more? Oh, Chi, Don Tom? Well, so I was, um, in there I'm referring to, I did an analysis of newspaper articles for 10 years, and so a l- number of women would write to uh, 
write to the newspaper to try and get advice. And so I believe what you're referring to is the story of a wife who discovers that her husband helped another woman get pregnant. And so she was curious, and um, she wanted to arrange to meet the other woman to uh, learn more about her. And when she did, she realized that the woman was a good person and, you know, admired her. Uh, And so uh, she uh, then decided you know, as a married woman, it was okay that her husband had helped this other woman. So it, that, it's remarkable how that, and it, it, it's also remarkable to me, Harriet, that uh, as you were talking earlier about a, a woman's capacity, and I mean that in absolutely the most upstanding way, not a, not a um, you know, a, a condescending way, that, that she could prepare a contract. I mean, where's the template knocking around? There's no, she can't just go and <laughs> no, Google that. No she, had to, she had to figure that out and in a way that was uh, reassuring and binding so that the extended families all knew what the, the, the terms, the parameters were for proceeding in this very unconventional way of making a, a bit of a family. Yes, and I think that goes back to, you know, um, the way that, I mean, this is a very pragmatic solution, and everyone that I talked to said, well, it's very sort of obvious. It's, it makes perfect sense. And so in some ways, it wasn't, they didn't necessarily think it was so remarkable. And I looked back into previous strategies for uh, women who perhaps their husbands were infertile, and there were different strategies in the past where a woman would be sent off to go and be impregnated elsewhere and come back, but nobody would say who the child was. But the other, um, thinking more about uh, the situation you just mentioned, you know, a lot of women really uh, gained a lot of strength and um, perseverance, which, of course, they had before. But during the war, the, the combination of participating in the war effort and uh, efforts by the women's union have really uh, made women uh, quite strong and have them recognize that they can do pretty much whatever what they want. Well, it's really extraordinary work that you've uncovered, and you've been working on it a long time. I want to thank you for coming, Harriet Finney, on the show today. I'd like to take up with you uh, on a, another program later on, the context of HIV and marriage, which that yours is your current work, um, if mm-hmm. we could do that. Thank you so much, Harriet Finney, for being on the show today. Well, thank you for having All me. All the best. We'll talk to you soon again. Okay, okay bye-bye. bye-bye. Well, we are going to close out here uh, shortly with um, the uh, heading you over to, to George Rosales, George Had Hat. But I wanted to take a moment to uh, let you know there's some critical topics being taken up by the Irvine City Council meeting today, Tuesday, March 12th. First, Mayor Choi and Council Members Shay and Lalloway are going, they propose to cut public arts programming at the Great Park, impose fees for uh, enjoying the balloon and carousel, would cost family maybe up to 40 bucks. The second matter they're going to take up is local gun safety measures, which, uh, you know, that the uh, Charles Bleck had talked about um, uh, on an earlier show, and I think January we covered this, and Charles Bleck will be at the meeting tonight with the uh, the gun issue. Uh, this was going to be about the uh, initiative that mayors are being asked to take up around the uh, country, uh, mayors against illegal guns. So um, if you all have a, a feeling of commitment coursing through your systems, you uh, might consider this uh, Irvine council meeting tonight. I believe it'll start at around five. You want to get there a little earlier. 
And uh, you can go to the City of Irvine website to look at the um, agenda. I thank you all for listening today. Next week, we're going to have IPSF, that's Irvine Public School Foundation, Chief Executive Officer, Nada Ningley, Ningley uh, on the show. And um, I've got another guest I'm working on still. Thanks for joining us today on Ask a Leader. All the best. Mm-hmm.